Hello and welcome to the Who Says No NBA Trade Podcast where we will not be talking about trades. Well, there's some trades, but we'll mostly be talking about NBA free agency, which is in full swing. Uh, the first day was crazy as usual. It's carried on into the second day. And of course, to talk about this, I'm going to bring on my co-host, who's actually really been the main host over the last couple of weeks, if you've been listening, because I've been taking kind of a hiatus from podcasts to deal with other things. But Sam Quinn, this has been a, a, a monumentous time in the NBA season, always an exciting time. Uh, I hear you're running on fumes, but I'd like to hear it from your own mouth. How are you doing right now? Yeah, Colin, I was going to say, you had a little bit of pep in your step. Like, you sound rested and good. Like, I need this because I think I've slept like 45 minutes over the last three days. I'm like the wrestling tag team partner who hasn't been in and I'm just reaching out like, come on, grab my hand. And you're just you tag me and I come in just like a house of fire clotheslining people. Well, I'm thinking like at this point, I hate to compare myself to LeBron James, but, you know, I've got a pretty high opinion of myself. But I'm thinking of myself as like playing 48 minutes here and I'm exhausted. And I need a break. But you know what? There's still two minutes left in this game. So we got to cover this stuff. Suck it up, man. This is winning time. If you're I'm trying to imagine like whatever the podcast version of Jimmy Butler hunched over the basket is, that's where I'm at right now. I'm just administering IVs into your quads just <laughs> to get you to be able to continue. If I were a player, by the way, like whether or not I needed it, I would absolutely release that story. Nothing sounds more badass for a player than like he's so tired that he needed the IV. People are going to remember that about Matthew Delvadova for the rest of his life. Yeah, we had it. Didn't there was a little Giannis like after what game five? I think they were saying he needed to get some IV. Something came out. You got to have the IV. What's the, what's the next stage of that? Because you just know somebody on the Miami Heat is going to have like, yeah, Markeith Morris. He got a kidney transplant after game four. <laughs> game like there's going to be something beyond that with that Heat team, which like. By the way, at this point, like their next signing is just going to be an old Louisville slugger with barbed wire wrapped around it. Like at some point, we're going to get to the next level with this. They're, they're going to be like, yeah, that wooden bat really like fits into heat culture. This is <laughs> the barbed wire is perfect for Miami. The Heat signed a drifter wearing a leather jacket. That's their mm-hmm. next signing. I think the next the next phase of the IV is probably the cryogenic chamber. You just like have one in the back, and they're like, "Yeah, LeBron, he he had to go back, you know, go to Malika Andrews." Uh, I've just been told LeBron James had to spend five minutes in the cryo chamber. He's going to be out in the next couple minutes. He'll be ready to go. What I hope is the case, and probably isn't, because it just would not be efficient use of space, is that the cryo chamber looks like the chamber from Empire Strikes Back with Darth Vader, where he has the helmet off. I would love it as a reporter. If we could get a look and just see the back of LeBron's head as he escapes that chamber. Is it wasn't that a scene from Space Jam? Was it? I don't even remember. <laughs> I, don't I didn't both of the you Space know, truth, Jams run together at this point. Truth be told, I did not watch Space Jam. You're not missing much, that's all I'm gonna say. The I worst say- part of it is just my one Space Jam thought before we get into this. The start of the fourth quarter, I think LeBron's team is down one, whatever. He takes it up the court, he has to ISO against his son, and he gives his son a motivational speech, and it's very nice. But when he starts this speech, it's the beginning of the fourth quarter and there's 12 minutes on the clock. When he ends it, there's like 40 seconds left. That's not how basketball works. There's a shot clock. It's a long speech. They, they made an exception. You know, my niece is four years old and hasn't really shown uh, that big of an interest in sports. But the new Space Jam is like her new favorite movie. 
like it surpassed like Frozen and Raya and like all these princess movies that she loves. And she brought out a figurine to play and it was a LeBron James Space Jam. She goes, this is LeBron James. And I was like, I know a little something about this guy, but I can tell we're going to have a bond for years to come. I like that she's a LeBron stand. You got to get to these kids early before they start associating with the wrong players. Yeah, he'd be really happy to know that. But anyway, speaking of LeBron, speaking of LeBron James, Sam, I don't know if you want. We're going to talk about free agency. I I know this is a little raw for you. Do you want to talk about a different team before we talk about the Lakers, just to give yourself some time to compose before we have to get into this? I think I'm looking at this like Luca in the Clippers series, where like if I do this Lakers rant now. I think I might be out of gas by the time we get to, like, the Bulls and the Pelicans. But I think we need those 46 points. I think we need the 30 in the first half. So I'm going to try to keep this limited. But I I talked about this. I I had Yossi Goslin on to talk about the Westbrook trade. Neither of us liked it. But I I think we both agreed at the time. There were pathways to making this work. It was unconventional. It wasn't the roster-building approach we're used to seeing with LeBron. But if they had nailed the rest of the offseason— that talent was so considerable that, you know, you, you might just be able to win with that anyway. And frankly, they still might. Like, I'll just leave it at that. The Lakers have two of the best seven or eight players in the NBA. I don't know how you want to categorize that with Anthony Davis. And Westbrook, for all of his flaws, is an all-star. Like, that means something. Having three guys at that level is valuable. But you really have to nail all of the moves around them if you're going to take such a stylistic leap of pairing LeBron James with a guy who can't shoot. I don't think they did a very good job of that. And that doesn't really have to do with the shooting necessarily because they got plenty of guys that could shoot. It has to do with a few other things. First of all, the defense took has taken such a step back. Alex Crusoe, third best defender on that team, gone. Contavious Caldwell-Pope, fourth best defender on that team, gone. Kyle Kuzma, fifth best defender on that team, gone. Dennis Schroeder, who's also a very good defender, presumably gone at this stage. I mean, I can't imagine a scenario where he's back. And then the other part of this is, like, they signed guys that have real expectations for shots, for dribbles, for minutes. Like, the first 11 guys on their roster, I don't know where exactly we are now as far as, I think they waved off Anzo McKinney. I don't think there have been any moves since then. But the first 11 guys that they signed, including guys they already had, had averaged a combined 303 minutes per game last year. Well, there are only 240 minutes in a basketball game, like, to be allocated, right? It's 48 minutes times five. And those guys weren't competing against each other for minutes. Like, guys are going to be really disappointed. Are the Lakers okay with Carmelo Anthony, like, taking 12 shots a game away from their stars? Do they want Kendrick Nunn running a bunch of pick and roll, a bunch of isolations? Do they want to let Malik Monk do his thing, right? Like, frankly, it seems to me like they tried to build a true Hooper team. They tried to sign a bunch of guys that can create their own shot and do not all that much else. I will say Trevor Ariza is a good defender, 37, maybe not a great one. Ken Bazemore is pretty good. He's fine. Beyond that, I just – I don't get the idea of this team. I don't get what it is they're trying to do here. Like, what's the theory? Who are the guys they're closing with? Like, what do they think is the best version of this team? Do they think of themselves as an elite offense? Well, maybe, but it's hard to be an elite offense when you have one guy that straight up can't shoot. If he doesn't have the ball, like, you're playing four on five. Are you an elite defense? Certainly not, because like, look at all the guys that they lost. I'm just not sure what they're trying to be. Like, Colin, what do you think the identity is here? 
This is a lot to unpack. I'm glad that that felt like a therapy session where you're just like, you know what? I'm not going to say anything. I'm just I'm not even going to take notes. You just need to let this all out, my man. So I appreciate you doing that. First of all, let's just give a little reset on on what, where the Lakers stand right now. Uh, obviously, they traded for Russell Westbrook. Uh, since then, they've added Trevor Ariza, Carmelo Anthony, Kent Bazemore, Wayne Ellington, Malik Monk, Kendrick Nunn, and they brought back Dwight Howard. They've also uh, re-signed T- Talon Horton Tucker. So to your point of what is their identity, obviously, I mean, we've talked about it. I'm sure you talked about it with Yossi that, that their defense is just, it's it's taken a step backwards. And they were the top defensive team in the league last year. I think they might have been third the year before, but probably the best defensive team in the playoffs. So that's been their identity. And and for all the the fun that LeBron is on offense and how great AD is for stretches, um, the defense is really what's been the driving force in their success. And as you mentioned, getting a bunch of 35-year-olds to play, no matter what level of defenders they've been in the past, it's a little shaky. And then my other question is, like, like what's their closing lineup? Like, obviously, you want to have AD at center. Then you're going with LeBron, Westbrook, what, Bazemore and Ariza, Carmelo and Bazemore? Well, this I is don't an know. important question that you're bringing up because I think us building this lineup would probably say Ariza probably has to be in it, right? Like, he's the other forward. He's the only other forward on the team that can defend. And then either you're going for Ellington for the, like, supercharged shooting or Bazemore is the balance between shooting and defense. I guess you could play that one by ear. I think Carmelo probably fancies himself a closer, right? Like, I think LeBron probably thinks that Carmelo is one of the five best players on the team. They're paying Taylor Horton Tucker like he's the fourth best player on the team. He's making $10 million on team that is full of minimums, right? Like, I don't necessarily know that the right lineups are the ones that the organization plans to use. I, th- I mean, yeah, maybe. But I think at the end of the day, like, Frank Vogel is going to play who he needs to play to win, right? Like, I know there's going to be pressure from the from the ownership, but if they're winning, no one's going to care. Well, yes and no. I mean, look at how long he started Andre Drummond last year. Eventually, they got it right, but he got it right too late. Andre Drummond, he of the minimum deal with the Philadelphia 76ers. He will not be missed. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Poor guy. Goes from making $25 million a year to the minimum. That's I, I you know. know. It's crazy, man. Colin, have you ever made $25 million in a year? Hold on. Let me think. Um, no. No, that was 25000 Okay. Yeah, no. Keep yeah, going. I think you're about as impactful to an NBA team's championship hopes as Andre Drummond is. Shots fired. So, Come on. Yeah, I, a, I mean, he's a great look, rebounder. Guy has made a hundred million dollars in his career. I'm not weeping for him. I'll take this closing lineup thing a step further. What are the lineups that have really worked for the Lakers in the past? LeBron at point guard, Anthony Davis at center, three shooters slash defenders around them, so you can just spam the LeBron AD pick and roll. You can't do that with Westbrook on the floor. Because nobody's going to defend him. So are, is it crazy to suggest that maybe their best closing lineup wouldn't include Westbrook? It's not crazy. Uh, my brother, who is uh, a few years older than me and an absolute diehard Lakers and Clippers fan since we moved out to L.A., um, has been clamoring. Uh, this is before Westbrook to L.A. talk even happened. Is was clamoring for Westbrook to be like this ultimate sixth man type guy. And... You know, whether he starts or not is kind of it doesn't really matter. He'll probably play with the second unit when LeBron sits. I think 
that makes the most sense. Um, but whether he closes is a, is a very important question. As you mentioned, you know, there's tons and tons of history showing that LeBron James plus shooting is your best bet to win. Uh, shooting and defense, obviously. And Westbrook provides neither shooting nor defense, really. So it, it, I'm a it's going to be crazy. optimistic defensively. <laughs> I'll say that. Like, he's not a particularly good defender. But I'll say, hey, he's always had to carry such a gargantuan offensive load that I think it, with some energy redirected, he can be better. He's also never had a defensive coach like Frank Vogel, right? Like, look at who his NBA coaches have been. Mike D'Antoni, not exactly known for maximizing players on defense. And Scott Brooks, who just, I'll, I don't think we think he's a great coach. I think the Lakers can find ways to make him more effective. Like, he's physical enough to switch up and defend bigger guys. He obviously gets a bunch of steals. Like, he gambles for them, but that's not worthless. Defensive rebounding is a part of defense. Like, there, there is defensive upside here, but he's not, like, he's certainly a worse defender than Alex Caruso. Yes, and, uh, like, the activity, and I guess you're getting at a bigger point, which is, like, uh, something we talked about offline, which is just, like, the Lakers took Dwight Howard and got him to play his role and buy in and, and play defense and, and do all the things people wanted to see from Dwight Howard for the previous 10 seasons, basically. Uh, they took guy Kyle Kuzma, who probably shot too much as an inefficient scorer, uh, and taught, taught him how to play defense, how to play his role, and he did really well. Um, I, I, uh, Westbrook is obviously a much different animal with the way that he's played, the numbers that he's put up, and the accolades he's received. Um, but are, are the Lakers hoping that, you know, hey, we get him in with LeBron and AD, we get Frank Vogel to, like you said, kind of teach him how to play defense for the first time, and we're going to transform Westbrook into this kind of, you know, dynamo winning player that he really hasn't been um, in the scenarios that he's been in the past. Like, is that their ultimate goal, you think, with this? Or it's just like, hey, we need to get three stars. Who cares? I don't think they thought this through. I think now they're probably trying to find ways to maximize Westbrook. And I think there are some interesting ideas here, right? Like, I know nobody wants to hear this comparison, but I think the Lakers could learn a lot about how to use Russell Westbrook from how the Nets use Bruce Brown, right? Using him as a role man in pick and roll, letting him, you know, put up floaters and like really take advantage of that athleticism in off-ball ways that like don't really kill you with, with his non-shooting. I, I think that that's something they should really consider. It's never been something that he's really done. He's never really been an off-ball cutter. So they're going to have their work cut out for them in figuring out how to use him off of the ball. And by the way, you bring up Dwight Howard sacrificing for the team, Kyle Kuzma sacrificing for the team. That was really the character of the 2020 championship team. The 2021 repeat bid, that was not their identity as a team, right? Dennis Schroeder comes over as a bench player from a number five seed and declares at media day, I think I should be a starter. I'm here to be a starter on a championship team. And clearly he didn't deserve that. Last year was not a great. disaster. Not great. Andre Drummond comes in the middle of the season and basically says, I need to be a starter. I need to play 20, 25 minutes a game. I need to take X shots. Well, when Marcus Saul and Anthony Davis were starting together early in the season before Davis got hurt, that was one of the best lineups in the NBA. Last season's team, frankly, was entitled, right? Like a lot of guys came in asking for things that they hadn't earned. I'm a little worried that that might be the case again this year, right? Like Russell Westbrook has never shown any willingness to sacrifice his own style, either, you know, offensively or like within the culture of an organization for the sake of his team. Carmelo Anthony didn't start coming off the bench until last year. 
how is he going to feel if he gets DNPCD'd four times in a row? Like Mark, Mark, that happened to Marquise Morris last year, and he handled it like a pro, and he was totally fine. I'm not convinced that Carmelo is going to be okay with that. And by the way, even if he is, are you sure that LeBron would be? Like, LeBron probably wants to play a fair bit with Carmelo. I don't like this. This team feels like a political nightmare. And I'm just looking up and down this roster. It's kind of the worst possible middle ground where you don't have guys that I think are capable of closing late in the playoffs. But you have so many guys that think they deserve to play that at least one or two of them is going to be disappointed. I don't know who it's going to be, but like, you know, Kendrick Nunn left money on the table to come to the Lakers. If they like Malik Monk more than him and Monk gets more minutes, like he's going to have issues, right? Kent right. Bays- same, same with Bazemore. He apparently left some money on the table from the Warriors to, to join them. Was- he's losing minutes to Ariza or THD, whoever it is. It was very specifically reported like he's coming to the Lakers because he expects to have a bigger role. I don't know what Rob Polinka may or may not have promised him, but like there are a lot of guys on this team that expect to play. And in the end, some of them are going to be disappointed. So I, I just think this has the potential to be kind of a minefield, right? I think there's upside here. Like the signings themselves are good value, right? Trevor Ariza for the minimum is good value. Malik Monk for the minimum is great value. Wayne Ellington for the minimum is great value. These are good players. I'm not denying that. There is a considerable amount of talent here. And there are players that do things that will help the Lakers and will work alongside their stars. It's just the overall cohesive whole that I don't really understand. I'm just not sure what this team is really trying to be. And I guess my answer is like, we'll kind of figure it out as the season goes, right? Like I would guess that they probably look at Monk and Nunn and Taylor Horton Tucker is like three really big upside plays and you don't need all three of them to hit. But if one of them really shines out and like looks like the player that you hope they are, that's a win. And then maybe you figure, maybe we trade one of the other ones or, you know, maybe we can just have them on the bench or like, you know, maybe Carmelo works out. Maybe he doesn't, maybe it's just a flyer to them. Like it was to Houston. I, I don't know for sure. I suspect there are going to be in season moves, whether it's a trade or a buyout or something. I'll just, this is my first prediction of this show. I think, Whenever the last game of the Lakers postseason run is, you know, whether it's in the NBA finals or in the second round or whenever, I think one of the five players who closes is not yet on the roster. Interesting. Buyout or trade deadline? Both. I would lean buyout, but I'll also point out at this stage, they have not re-signed Wesley Morris or Wesley Matthew. Wesley Morris is the film critic, right? Wesley Morris. Awesome. <laughs> I love Wesley Morris. Glad, this shout is how fried my brain is. They have not re-signed Wes Matthews. I think he would probably close for them if he was on this roster. I think he's probably like the best 3 and D player out of anybody they could feasibly get. Um, They still have roster spots left to figure out. They waived McKinney probably for a reason. So I think there's a good chance that like seven or eight of these guys like pop and really work. And then they add one or two at the deadline and that's sort of their team. But I'll put it this way. The Nets, you could argue that the three stars for the Nets and the three stars for the Lakers are even. I don't know if I'd agree with that. I'd probably lean the Nets slightly, but I totally understand the argument that the three stars on those two sides are even, and it's going to come down to the role players. Well, look at who the Nets have. Joe Harris, one of the best shooters in the NBA. Patty Mills, one of the best shooters in the NBA. Bruce Brown, who we mentioned, role player extraordinaire. Blake Griffin, who like really looked good last year and like Honestly, he was a very big part of the Nets almost upsetting the Bucks, 
even after they had all those injuries. Nick Claxton, who looked really, really promising. You just know they're going to get one or two guys in the buyout market because they got everyone last year. The Nets have like a really cohesive identity beyond their stars. They have guys that would be like starting on other teams. I don't know if the Lakers do. I think their supporting cast right now, like it needs a fair bit of work. And I don't know what was realistic, by the way. Like I had talked extensively about maybe there's a way to revive the Buddy Heel trade. It doesn't look like there was, or more scarily, maybe there was and the Lakers weren't willing to pay the tax burden that would come with it, right? I mean, there have been reports that Lakers were only willing to offer Alex Caruso $7 million a year. The Bulls are paying him almost 10 Like, the Lakers kind of cheaped out. I don't know where exactly they are. Their luxury tax payment is still going to be considerable, but I don't know if they have the commitment to winning that they need to keep up with the Nets. Yeah, the the report from the Athletics said that Caruso came to them with his uh, his deal with the Bulls, and they didn't even counter. They're just like, have fun. <laughs> but when you well, talk about, let me just ask you this, just quickly. Are you crying? You're trying to win the, the championship. I'm sorry. No, I'm I just took a swig of water. Okay. Um. So James texted me a screenshot. James Herbert, our coworker, texted me a screenshot of that report from the Athletic earlier today, and just like. Dude, why are you twisting the knife? Like, why are you doing this to me? But yeah, for those of you who may have never listened to an episode of this podcast before, Alex Caruso, I, I, I would it's it's an understatement to say he's your favorite NBA player. He might just be your favorite human being in general on the I earth. I feel like I just got divorced. <laughs> is, I think the best way to put it. But just you're trying to win a championship next season. Forget the long term stuff. Would you rather have Alex Caruso or Talon Horton Tucker? Caruso. Right. Like Caruso, he's a flawed player. I'll, I'll point that out. Like that's fair to say, but we know exactly how he would produce on a winner because he was maybe the fourth or fifth best player on a championship team, right? Like great defender improved as a shooter last year. Awesome connective passer. Awesome. This overall role player, like great hustle. We know what he is on a winning team. Taylor Horton Tucker is kind of a mystery box, right? Like, Really athletic, really long arms. Like, he gets to the basket really well. He's a great finisher, but he can't really shoot at this stage. He's not really a great defender yet. There's obviously a lot of room for optimism. Like, listen, if you think Taylor Horton Tucker is going to be a really good player, I see it. I I get what you're you're grasping at. But he's 20. And rarely do 20-year-olds contribute to NBA champions. It is the most likely scenario here is that by the time Taylor Horton Tucker is ready to genuinely contribute to a championship team, the Lakers stars are too old to be a championship team. Like, right. If it takes Taylor Horton three years in three years, LeBron's about to turn 40. So by the way, we talked about this at the trade deadline and I just want to take you down a little bit of a what if scenario. It seemed at that point that if the Lakers were willing to include Taylor Horton Tucker in Kyle Lowry talks, they would have landed Lowry. I look at that as sort of the original sin of all of these problems because think of how many things change if they had land Lowry. Number one, Taylor Horton Tucker is off of the roster because he's in the Lowry trade. If that's the case, that salary slot that you gave him, that $32 million deal, just give it to Alex Crusoe. Like, boom, problem solved. Number two, Lowry does not have these shooting issues. He is a very, very good shooter. You don't have to worry about getting these very specific kinds of players around him. Number three, you don't have to give up Kyle Kuzma. You don't have to give up Montrez Harrell. I guess you do have to give up Contavious Caldwell-Pope. But with Kuzma and Montrez Harrell still in tow, you can go and trade them for Buddy Heald, as had been reported by basically everybody that 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 deal nearly happened. And because of the, the difference in salaries between Westbrook and Lowry, 
it's almost $15 million. You could do that without taking on like a really gargantuan luxury tax payment, right? Like basically Lowry plus healed is equal in salary roughly to Russell Westbrook and a tax pyramid level guy. So get rid of none, I guess, in this scenario. It is not that hard to imagine, therefore, a scenario where the Lakers go into next season with a starting lineup of Kyle Lowry, Buddy Heald, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Marcus All, with Alex Caruso as the sixth man. That's a 65-win team if you get the minimums right, right? Like, that's the best team in the NBA. That team's as good as Brooklyn or probably a little better. So that's the move that I look back on and say, it all started there. If they had made that trade, like a certain someone had told them they should at the time, none of these issues exist. So you're saying you should be a special advisor to Genie Bus, is what you're trying to say? I think I'd have some interesting things to say. Yeah. I think I could control that office. And I want to make something clear here, by the way. Like, I am not a fan of these moves. Like, I think I've made that very clear. This is not me saying, like, the Lakers are going to lose in the first round. This is not me saying, like, they've doomed any chances of giving LeBron a fifth championship. They are so talented that they very well could still win the championship, right? Like, especially if we get anywhere near the number of injuries to other teams that we got last year. If the Nets are out, I don't know if there's another team that I'd pick to beat the Lakers in the seven-game series. If you had to pick a Western Conference champion right now, you'd probably take the Lakers, right? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to. And I guess depending on how you feel about the, the Warriors and Klay Thompson. I think if you, if you expect the Warriors to make a big in-season trade, which there's a there's good reason to believe they might. That probably would be enough for me to push the Warriors over the top. But if you put these two rosters side by side as they currently exist, I'd probably lean the Lakers slightly with Phoenix just below. And we can talk about Phoenix in a little bit. I'm not super crazy about what they did. Utah is in that same kind of maybe first tier, maybe second tier. I love what they did. I think Rudy Gay is going to be great for them. You but like the Hassan Whiteside signing is what you're saying? I don't hate it as much as everybody else, <laughs> but I don't like, I don't think it's great. Um, you know, like I guess if the Clippers are healthy, they're the biggest threat to the Lakers, but who knows if they're going to be, I would still pick the Lakers right now. If you put a gun to my head and said, pick a Western conference champion, I'd pick them right now, but the standard is not make it to the finals. The standard is win the finals. And I got to tell you, I think if, if they played the Nets right now, they would lose. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of playoff questions. You know, there's the shooting, there's the Westbrook issue, uh, there's the defense. I think that's, you know, a lot of Lakers fans are are kind of celebrating this offseason because they, like you said, they got a lot of you know good value players uh, for the money that they had. But I think uh, the the issues arise when you look at this team and how it's going to perform in the playoffs. But as you always say, when you have LeBron James, you have Anthony Davis, that covers up a lot of mistakes, and there's a lot of well, things that they could probably figure out. I have a couple final notes here. Number one, I think I get why Twitter liked it this much, right? You know who they signed? Carmelo Anthony? They signed a bunch of true hoopers. True. That's what they did. You're they, not, they a, signed you're not a true Anthony. hooper. No, I'm not a true hooper. I'm sorry. I'm a basketball player. Um, they signed Carmelo Anthony. You know, great. Bunch isolation, bunch mid-range jumpers. You know, Kendrick Nunn, bucket getter. Malik Monk, bucket getter. I think Twitter tends to overvalue those guys a lot. And by the way, we saw this last year, right? When Lakers fans were clamoring after they got Montrezl Harrell and Dennis Schroeder for Rob Palinka to be executive of the year. Like, no, just because you've got guys that can put the ball in the hoop, that doesn't necessarily mean they made sense on that team. And as we saw, they didn't. Both of those guys are gone, right? Like, I just, I think I would caution Lakers fans to, 
maybe not overreact to these moves that much. Like, now I would say maybe you could argue I've overreacted in the other direction, but just because you got a bunch of big names does not necessarily mean you have a cohesive team. And I do feel like I've been a little hard on them, but I mean, I guess given the financial constraints that they had, sure, they got good players, but we should also just say the Lakers have been printing money for years on end. They have the best local TV deal in the country, right? Like, I think it's $150 million per year they get from Spectrum Sportsnet. Like, this team does not have any right to be crying poverty and saying we can't afford to re-sign Alex Caruso. Like, this is what all of those lean lottery years are for, for you to put away those profits and invest them when you're ready to win. And I have one last basketball point that I want to make. We've kind of talked about Anthony Davis at center as this sort of cure-all for their spacing woes, even like with or without Westbrook, frankly. Are we sure that's really the case? Because Davis shot 26% from three last year, right? Like, he's a 31.2% career three-point shooter. And everybody points to the way he shot in the bubble in the playoffs. That's not the norm. He's not usually Kevin Durant in the mid-range. He doesn't usually make 40% of his threes. I think the truth probably lies somewhere in between. But if you have LeBron, who is a good shooter, like not a great one, Westbrook, total non-shooter, and Davis, who's like clearly not the shooter that people think he is, that's getting really cramped. I don't think just taking a center off of the floor changes that. Well, I think that, I mean, that's, yes, you're right. But I also think that like in order for the Lakers to win, like Anthony Davis has to be that good. And, you know, he was in the bubble and he may not be ever again. Who knows? But he's been amazing in the playoffs throughout his career. So I think you know, no, that's not a, a cure-all, end-all, um, and he might not shoot that well, but I think if he's not shooting that well, you're not going to win anyway. So, I, you know what I mean? I think that's kind of what they're thinking. I get. I mean, there are certain levels that Davis, like there are certain things that he can do that are sustainable and they should expect. Like Anthony Davis is the best playoff defensive player in the NBA. When they get to the playoffs, he is a total game wrecker. They can rely on that. But I think asking him to go from being, I don't know, 40% mid-range shooter, 31% three-point shooter, to 50% mid-range and 40% from three, that feels a little unrealistic to me. Like, I think that's a little bit of Lakers exceptionalism, just assuming that he's going to get there. You're gonna, he's going to turn to Julius Randle in the playoffs? I don't think I would go that far, <laughs> but like, okay, there's some very, very, very slight similarities. Colin, we've talked about the Lakers enough. Bring up another team. Yeah, I was just going to say, just devil's advocate real quick. Uh, Wayne Ellington, Kent Bazemore, Carmelo Anthony, Malik Monk, Kendrick Nunn, all shot 38% or or better on threes last season. Just saying that they are bucket getters, but they can also step out and and knock down a three-point shot. Sure, but how many of those guys can defend? And that's that's the ultimate. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, you can put shooting on the floor, you can put defense on the floor, but the issue that this team is going to encounter is that they're going to struggle to put both on the floor at the same time. Let's leave it at that. We've spent the first half hour of this podcast talking about the Lakers, which it, to some I people is probably not, an, expect- probably not enough. You know, I swear I didn't expect to go that long. Um, let me talk about another. Let's go to the other conference. Uh, the kind of unanimous winners of free agency so far, uh, the Miami Heat. They added Kyle Lowry, who you said, you know, could have been a difference maker for the Lakers and kind of set them on a different course towards a championship. Um, They add P.J. Tucker, which was kind of a surprise. It seemed like he was a little surprised himself on Instagram saying, uh, you know, uh, you can't you got to control what you can control. And my my career took a different turn. 
Um, they re-signed Duncan Robinson. They got Tyler Hero coming off the bench, who may have a you know somewhat resurgent season after kind of not taking a step backwards, but certainly not taking a step forward as we expected last year. So, Sam, let me ask you this. Are the Heat a legitimate contender in the Eastern Conference? I guess that depends on your definition of contender, right? Like, if we're being honest. To win the Eastern Conference, come out and make the NBA Finals. If, if everybody's healthy, I think we all say that the Nets are, like, so overwhelming as favorites that you should pick them no matter what. And if anybody would beat them, it would be the Bucks. But I'll say this. Look at how last year's Finals played out. Both the Bucks and the Suns got a lot of injury help on the way to the Finals. That's all you can really do, right? Like, put yourself in the best position possible. The Heat are now one sprained ankle away from being in a position to make the finals, right? Like, if they play the Nets and get the same luck that the Bucks did last year, yeah, I think they could beat them. And I don't think that was at all the case last year. The Bucks, like, it cannot be overstated how badly the Bucks humiliated them last year, right? Like, that wasn't just a sweep. That was a total decimation. That ain't happening now, right? Like, this is probably one of the toughest teams I've ever seen. Like, look up and down this roster as far as, like, tough guys go. Jimmy Butler, Kyle Lowry, PJ Tucker, Bam Adebayo, Marquise Lawrence. Like, Jesus, how, like, I would never want to play against those guys. It just seems awful. You'd be so sore afterward. They have a lot of shooting here. Like, everything, all the weaknesses of the guys that they have are matched by other guys on the team, right? Like, it hurts to have PJ Tucker on your offense. There's no question about that. You're playing four on five. But Duncan Robinson is such a good shooter that he basically counts as two spacers, right? Like, that's how big his impact is on an offense. That's how much gravity that he has. You go up and down this roster, like, I mean, they haven't really filled out the bench yet. You're, I guess, like, maybe Casey Paul is playing a meaningful role. Maybe, like, you know, Vincent is playing a re- meaningful role. I don't know. Max we'll Struce. see who else they get from the minimum. Right? Like, I guess we're expecting, like, one or two traditional heat guys to emerge like Robinson and Kendrick Nunn did as undrafted free agents. Like maybe they'll stumble into one or two more of those guys, but I just, I don't see a real weakness on this team. Do you? Um, well, uh, you mentioned their one sprained ankle away and I immediately thought, Oh wait, who's spraining the ankle? Just because if you're talking about weaknesses, Kyle Lowry's 35, uh, Jimmy Butler is 32. BJ Tucker's 36. Jimmy Butler is 32, which, based on the wall dang, means he's like 46 in Tom Thibodeau years. He's got some mileage, some mileage on him. So I, I guess that's my, uh, their their age and their depth, I think, are the two biggest questions for me. Um, and I guess there's might be, you know, you mentioned Robinson, but if Lowry's not like knocking down threes, there could be some spacing issues just in terms of having Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo on the court. Um, with Lowry, um, I know he's an improved three-point shooter, but I, yeah. I, I, don't know I don't know if we'd we'd categorize him as a knockdown three-point shooter. Would you? He, I, I think the worst you can say is like he's a net neutral. Like defenses respect him. You're not, he's not going to hurt your spacing by being on the floor. And I would also just say like offense was not the problem for Miami last year. It was defense. And Kyle Lowry is an awesome defender. We don't know how much longer that's going to be the case. But he also fits really well with the guys they have, right? Like, with Bam Adebayo, your best bet on defense is probably switching. Well, Kyle Lowry can – he could defend Godzilla, right? Like, nobody's posting up Kyle Lowry. So I think he's just a great fit for everything that they do. 
Yeah, I agree. And he did shoot 40% last year on seven attempts a game. So if that continues, also, they'll be, they'll be quite just, fine. You know that they're getting a buyout guy. Like, especially given their depth issues. Like, the fact that they can offer real minutes to somebody, they're getting someone good. Who's the Blake Griffin of this year? Who's, like, the super overpaid? Is it Kevin Love? I think Kevin Love is a possibility, but, like, how excited are you about Kevin Love? Yeah, as I was going to say. I don't, well, how excited were people about Blake Griffin? I don't know. Well, it's a fair point, but I, I guess Blake had a much higher floor for athleticism than Love. Like, even when Kevin Love was in his prime, that dude was not athletic. Yeah, he's going to be – he's going to have problems in playoff defense, let's put it that way. Yeah, I haven't really thought about the buyout market for next year, but like, let's. Why not, to... Sam? You got, you got other things on your plate. What have you been doing? There's no chance that Kemba Walker gets bought out, right? Like, that's they're going to rehab his value and trade him for a pick. He's just going to have an All NBA season like Chris Paul. <laughs> the Thunder I've are going to somehow make the playoffs, even though they're trying to lose every single game. The Thunder have this max slot like built into their salary books, where like I call it the guest lecture, where it's just every year it's a different veteran, like. Oh, this year Chris Paul is doing his tour in Oklahoma City. Then it's Al Horford, and then it's well now it's Kemba. Like, there's always going to be somebody in that slot, and they're going to trade that. They're going to trade Kemba for whoever the next version of that is next year. What about Gary Harris, the big buyout guy? Why is he still in Orlando? He's in Orlando. Who knew? Yeah, he was in the in the Aaron Gordon trade. I don't think he really makes much sense there. Like, there are not that many huge salaries here that like you'd expect to be bought out. But he's somebody that comes to mind. There were also some uh, guys. Didn't some guys get bought out with like two years left on their deal? Like, I feel like the buyouts are getting a little extreme these days. Well, it's it's happening more frequently. Like, I think Damari Carroll had multiple years left. Blake Griffin, obviously, had multiple years left. But it has to be something pretty extreme to make that happen. I don't think that that's likely. Maybe Jeremy Lamb gets a buyout. Like, maybe the Pacers just stretch him or something. But to your point, the Heat are a prime target for whoever that person might be. It is not a great buyout class next year, just looking at it, but there's always somebody, somebody that we don't expect, maybe. Yeah. And and so, like, I, I mean, I like when you do this, but, like, let's just go through the East. So, you still have the Nets above them. Uh, you still have the Bucks above them? Yes. I mean, losing Tucker Hurts. I actually don't think losing Tucker Hurts as much as people think it does. It Did hurts you see Nets that guy? He's a dog. He's a dog. We're dogs, man. It hurts in the Nets matchup specifically, but remember, they're getting Dante DiVincenzo back. They're getting George Hill back, which I don't think people really grasp how big the deal that is. Yeah. Like, they had Jeff Teague playing real minutes in the finals. That was such a glaring negative. To just get up to neutral from that is is so enormous. George Hill is better than neutral. I think there's a chance, like, we can talk about like this a little bit more. I quietly think they're a really prime Victor Oladipo destination. If they want to take an upside that, swing. I've heard that. I've heard that chatter. I, I think that would be a great trick for them as another ball handler. Like, I think the Bucks probably got worse on defense by losing P.J. Tucker. But their ceiling or their floor is so high that I think that that's not the end of the world. And they're going to get better on, on offense now that they're not playing four on five anymore. Also, potentially more Bobby Portis minutes, which could be a blessing and a curse for well, Milwaukee Bucks. As we saw, it's a curse against Brooklyn because he couldn't play in the last two games of that series. Yeah, so they—I mean—that's another potential buyout team if there's ever anything. But are the are the Heat better than the 76ers? I guess it's a hard question to answer because of Ben Simmons. We don't know. Deal. Yeah, we don't know what their team is. But if you if they played a seven game series right now, I'd pick the Heat. Are the Heat better than the Hawks? 
this is tough, right? Because in my head, I didn't think the Hawks are better than the Sixers. But as I game this out in my head, the Hawks had so many injuries last year. You know, like they have so many young guys that are getting better. Am I crazy for thinking the Hawks are probably the three seed in the East? Um, I, it really depends on what happens with Simmons because you got a pencil in Nets Bucks, I think, until we hear otherwise. Barring more injuries, sure. But even like the Nets had all of those injuries last year and they're still the two seed. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I, I assume you think the Heat are better than the Celtics. Yeah, I think I would lean Celtics number six. We'll get to the other team that's in the mix for number six. I really like Boston. I think they've quietly had a really good offseason. I mean, I've written about this pretty extensively. The goal is to generate cap space for next offseason. Why? If Why? If Bradley Beal does not get traded, I would think that Boston joining up with his close friend Jason Tatum, both of them St. Louis natives, would be really appealing to him. So they have done a really good job of preserving cap space for next year without like decimating this year's team. Having Josh Richardson, Al Horford, Marcus Smart, Jason Tatum, and Jalen Brown in a starting five, that's a really good defense. That's probably a top five defense. Jalen Brown, Bradley Beal, and Jason Tatum. I, I might move to Boston if that happens. Uh, that would be such I a mean, fun team. I guess you'd say Brooklyn is favored over them in the first year, but the Boston guys are young and the Brooklyn guys are getting older. It would not be long before Boston would probably become the favorite in the East. Pipe dreams. Anyway, we're talking about the Heat. So, I mean, yeah, yes, I like their moves. I think that they did what they need to do. But now that we're going through the team, like, could they be the five seed? Like, is, is that possible after all these moves? They could, but I think they're in that first tier, unless you want to count the Nets as their own tier, which is fine. They're in that tier of, like, they're close enough that with the right breaks, I think they can make the finals. The difference between the five seed and the three seed is not huge to me. I think the drop-off comes after those five teams. They're in the mix right now. Let's leave it at that. A team that we didn't mention being in the mix, another Eastern Conference team who t- fans on Twitter are very mad at me for listening to them as a loser in free agency, uh, the New York Knicks. I'm very curious to hear what you said, uh, what you say about them. They basically brought back Derrick Rose, Alec Burks, Nerlens Noel on three-year deals. They lost Reggie Bullock, but they added uh, Evan Fournier in a four-year, I think, $78 million deal, which is kind of their big move. Basically, they're bringing the band back together um, and adding Fournier. What do you think about the Knicks offseason? I don't want to lead you in too much. I've got a conspiracy for you. All of the contracts here are guaranteed for three seasons. What happens three summers from now? Well, next summer, Zion Williamson is extension eligible. If he doesn't sign it, a year later, he would get to sign a qualifying offer if he wants to. That would make him an unrestricted free agent in the summer of 2024. We don't think that that's what's going to happen. We think he's going to sign an extension and be in New Orleans at least for five more years or so. But if you really want to extrapolate this, I don't know that it's necessarily a coincidence that the Knicks weren't guaranteeing money in the first summer in which Zion could possibly become a free agent. But I don't want to spend too much time on that conspiracy because there is actual like immediate concerns to talk about right now. I'm, I'm confused here. I, I don't know. You want to talk about a team that like you don't know what their plan is. They basically ran back last year's roster with one you know meaningful improvement. I think Fournier is 
a good deal better than Bullock, but like Reggie Bullock was really good for them last year. I think you could argue he's underpaid on his new deal in Dallas. Last year's team was a four seed in a pretty fluky season, right? Like they were one of the healthiest teams in a very injured league. I think if you played that season 10 times, maybe they're closer to a six or a seven seed. The East is going to be better next year, right? We'll talk about Chicago in a little bit. Charlotte should be better. They're, they're pretty young. Indiana should be back. Like they're, they're probably going to slip here. And I guess if I were to say what I think they're hoping, it's that the improvement is internal, where Alfred Payton is presumably gone now, so Emmanuel Quickly is going to play more minutes, and R.J. Barrett is going to maybe take a leap from very good player to hopefully all-star for them. Like, maybe they're thinking they didn't need the big outside swings, or maybe they thought they needed a bunch of matching salaries to send out a Damian Lillard trade someday, but... I don't really get it. They they cost themselves flexibility with these big multi-year contracts. They didn't get that much better on the floor. I I don't get it. You're really hoping on Barrett to take a leap if you think this team is gonna, you know, be as good as it was last year. Even. Yeah, that's. Uh, I guess that's where, you know, that was kind of the big question is like, what, will the Knicks kind of think that last year was going to be the norm from now on like hey we're uh, you know a middle of the the you know top tier top four top five eastern conference and we just need to kind of galvanize our guys and like you said like hope that we have some improvement or are they looking at it like you said it was a weird year uh we kind of overachieved we need to kind of go back to the drawing board and see what we have here and it looks like they just kind of went sideways instead of going forward so to me, I, I think the biggest thing is Randall and like he had an absolutely unbelievable year last year. And then, you know, I think all of us watched in the playoffs as he kind of uh, unfolded and you're like, like, what is Julius Randall moving forward? And if he's not this like transcendent mid-range shot maker and, and shoots as well from the three-point line as he did and kind of as, is this playmaker that they need. I, they didn't really add anybody that can fill in that role to me unless, like you said, unless Barrett can can really step forward. Um, but I don't know if he's going to be that type of player that soon. And if that's not the case, uh, they kind of just, you know, got the band back together with a little bit of shooting from Fournier and a little bit of playmaking. Like you said, the East is really good. Teams are getting better below them. Uh I don't see it. And and then that's fine if you want to do that and just say, hey, we'll figure it out later. But like you said, then we, we add the, these three year deals where we're paying money and committing to these guys well into the future. So it was, it was a little confusing to me. I hate to harp on previous mistakes here. And it's it may even be too early to be a mis- to be called a mistake. Right. Like Obi Toppin might turn out to be as good as the Knicks hoped. I'm not feeling great about that after one year, but I'm not ruling it out. This team would look so much better to me if they had Tyrese Halliburton. They need they need a little bit more playmaking and need a little bit more defense from the guard spots because Rose not a very good defender, quickly still young. Burks okay defender. Like I, I think having Halliburton would really make this team make a lot more sense. But they chose Toppin thinking that Randall wouldn't be as good as he is, and then he turned out to be spectacular. So it's not the worst problem to have. But I would also be a little worried after that playoff series that, like, are you really relying on Randall to be that good again? And, like, let's say he is that good again in the regular season, but he flames out in the playoffs again. Like, he's a free agent next offseason. Do you want to give him a max? 
that, I mean, that's like that's like the kind of move that they're. It seems like they're making. Like they're just like, okay, yeah, we're a good team. We're gonna stick with it and move forward. But uh, yeah, I, I would have to look at next year's free agent crop. But I don't know. I guess I guess you always have to look at free agency. Like, what was the alternative? And I would have loved for them to bring back Rose and, you know, Burks and Noel on one year deals, but maybe that's just not possible. And they had other offers elsewhere and they were going to take those. So maybe this is just what they needed to do and they didn't really have any other options. So maybe I'm maybe I'm being too hard on them. I would get that logic if this were a team that was above the cap and only could operate with bird rights. But they had so much cap space that if they made their guys one year offers and they took turn them down. Somebody else would have taken them, right? Like, maybe you go to Alex Crusoe and say, hey, instead of taking $37 million from the Bulls, take one year and $15 million to come play for us, or whoever the free agent is. They could have found guys to take one-year deals. They wouldn't have been as good as the guys they ultimately got, but I think if that flexibility was really important to them, they could have maintained it. I think that they're probably thinking at this stage – if we're adding a big guy at some point, it's going to be through trade and not free agency. And I don't necessarily disagree with that logic because the only big free agents next year are Zach Levine, who all-star, like he'd be very helpful for them, but he's not Kevin Durant, right? Like he's not the sort of guy that Knicks fans have waited whole years to get. And then Bradley Beal, who I think his goal would strictly be winning. The Knicks are pretty good last year, but are they the best situation to try to win championships right away? I would say probably not. If I wanted to win a title, I'd rather be with Boston and be with their young stars. So I don't see a likely star path for them in free agency. So I guess they looked at it and agreed and thought, let's just have good players in the building. We'll stay decent. We'll stay opportunistic. And hopefully one day the right star will become available and will pounce. The Knicks preaching patience. See, maybe that's the whole issue that I'm having here with <laughs> the Knicks offseason. Like, what are you doing? Why didn't you, get, why didn't you sign Chris Paul? What's wrong with you? Did you think there was any chances, as, as an aside, was there ever a moment where you thought Paul might not resign with the Suns? Yeah, I mean, definitely a moment. I, I don't think anybody thought that was a realistic possibility, but definitely, like, especially when they said, you know, he's opting out of his, his final year. It's like, okay, hey, same with Kawhi. Like, hey, maybe, you never know. You never know what these people are thinking. The moment that I kind of quirked an eyebrow, I'm like kind of, I, I was interested, and this could be a segue into this team, is when I think it was a day or two, maybe it was Sunday, maybe it was Saturday, I can't remember when exactly, but we saw this report that, like, you know, the Pelicans are trying to coax him into coming back to the team that he served his career with. And then I was just like, oh, okay, this is interesting for a lot of reasons, right? It seems like he wants to be in Phoenix in part because it's close to L.A., close to his family, and I got New Orleans isn't, but it's at least a city that his family's familiar with, so, like, if they had to relocate that might not be, you know, maybe that's possible. I, I don't know the circumstances. Would be a very good young team, another chance for him to kind of impart his wisdom on young guys. The Pelicans seemed really desperate to do something. You don't give up the draft capital that they gave up unless you really think you've got to get better next year. So I thought maybe they would be willing to do a contract that Sarver wouldn't, but I never seriously thought they were going to leave. How did you feel about the moves that Phoenix made, by the way? Um... Basically, bringing Chris Paul back and signing JaVale McGee. Did I miss anything? And resigning campaign. And re well, the deal they got campaign on. I mean, Jesus, who's campaign's agent? Like, you got Kelly Olynyk and 
like random guys making fifty million dollars and campaign has that season and that playoffs and okay. then ends up with three years, nineteen million. Here's my counterpoint. Den, uh, Dennis Schroeder is still unsigned. Reggie Jackson is still unsigned. Both of those guys are better, and I don't know where they're going to get much more than that. I guess they could both get the full mid-level, but Reggie Jackson go back to the Clippers on the early bird max. But like, it doesn't seem like there were many better offers out there. It seemed like teams had chosen who their guards were going to be. And if you weren't one of those, you know, if you weren't in that game of musical chairs, you'd get left standing when the musical when the music stopped. Fair enough, but can't you just wait at that point then? <laughs> like, isn't that deal still going to be on the table? I guess, but with the Suns, you never really know. And by the way, they could have taken their mid-level and, like, done something else with it. I know that they didn't use their mid-level on Payne, but, like, if they had been at all worried that Payne was going to leave, they would have been in- an interesting team to go use their mid-level on Patty Mills, who I think is probably a better player than Payne. And also, like, I, I think... He's, I don't want to say he's a better fit because Payne did fit very well with him last year, but he's more of the traditional like veteran chasing a star. He's more reliable, like he's done this for much longer. But I wonder if the fact that the the Suns resigned Payne over looking at other guards means that they view Payne eventually as Paul's replacement as the starter. I find I find that hard to believe. I just I. I, I I think they just like what he brought culturally, and they think he'll be able to do basically the same thing he did uh, last year. And, and we saw in the postseason, he struggled at times, and he was very kind of hit or miss. Uh, when it was going well, it was great. When it wasn't going well, he kind of got pulled. Um, but to answer your question, I, I think it's fine what they did. I don't love JaVale McGee. I saw some stuff uh, from people saying they really liked him as their backup center. Um I, I guess I would have preferred a more bruising, kind of more like offensive rebounding type for them. But, you know, I don't know. I've I've lived the JaVale McGee experience. It's not the worst thing to have him on your team. There's opportunity cost of using mid-level money to sign him. He's a minimum guy. He's not somebody you should be using your mid-level to sign. I did not agree with that signing. But, I mean, hey, my, my track record with Suns takes is not great. I would have preferred. I don't know what you're talking about. I would have preferred if they would have maybe used their full mid-level to bring back Kelly Oubre and, you know, get another wing in there after losing Tory Craig. I feel like the other thing they could do as a backup big, by the way, is Dario Saric is probably not going to play this year, right? Maybe you trade his salary and draft capital to another team, maybe a worse team that has a backup big that you can use this year then they don't need to win as badly. Like maybe that would have been something they could have looked into. So I, I wasn't crazy about what they did. It's not like they hurt themselves. They're going to bring back next year's core, but I don't know. Like I, I think the Suns probably had an opportunity to really make some meaningful gains. And I don't think that they actually did it. Yeah. I, I tend to agree with you with that, but we're not here to talk about the Suns. Let's talk about the team you, uh, you mentioned before the Pelicans, which is are already on, Zion Williamson watch. <laughs> you said the Knicks may or may not be, be eyeing him already for, for three or four years from now. Um, lost Lonzo Ball, who Zion Williamson had talked about what a good relationship he had, him and Brandon Ingram had with, with Lonzo, uh, said he would want love to have him back. Um, clearly, the Pelicans did not agree with that, didn't want to pay him the money, so they ended up with... Thomas Sadoransky and Garrett Temple, and then they traded a pick for Devontae Graham, who I love, by the way. But um, I listed the Pelicans as a loser just because it seems like 
this isn't the offseason that that Zion would have wanted for them. And I think that's really the most important thing right now. I don't know if you disagree. It doesn't seem like the offseason that David Griffin wanted either, right? Like, they took these extreme steps to clear this cap space, thinking they were going to get Kyle Lowry. And there were risks to Kyle Lowry, right? Like, do you want such an old guy coming in on a huge contract when you're, you know, most of your young players are in their 20s? I don't know. Like, they're, I, I the see Chris, the benefits. The Chris Paul effect, Sam. I don't know if you heard. Well, I listen, I love Kyle Lowry as much as anybody, but he's not as good as Chris Paul. But I, I, I don't know. Like, I guess what I'm wondering is I, I would have been, and I, I'm not going to say that I'm not okay with Devontae Graham. I think he makes a lot of sense on this team. The shooting speaks for itself. He's a really, really great shooter. And his weaknesses don't really matter on this roster, right? Like, defensively, they do. But the fact that he doesn't get to the rim at all, and by the way, I have a stat on this. Devontae Graham took fewer shots in the restricted area last season than LeBron James took in the 2020 finals alone. I think it was 58 to 54. Like, this guy does not shoot inside. What? Yeah. But that doesn't really matter on a team with Zion Williamson, right? Like, the shots Graham is going to take, are they're all threes, and he's going to make most of those threes. So in that sense, I think it's a good fit. I sort of expected, once they got Graham on a lower contract than, than the Bulls gave Lonzo, I think it was a $38 million difference. I think it was four times 85 over four over... 47, I think. Yeah. Something like that. Right. It might have been a $38 million difference. I, when they saved all of that extra money, my immediate thought was they're using this cap space on somebody else, right? Like instead of bringing back Lonzo, it was going to be Graham plus blank. And plus blank never really materialized. Now they saved flexibility for next year, which I think could be important. I think ultimately what they decided was they would rather have Devontae Graham plus an extra 40 million or so over the next four years than Lonzo Ball in a first round pick. I guess I understand that decision in a vacuum. It's not the decision I would have made, but you've got to really do something good with that extra 40 million to make up that difference. And our, I guess, yeah. So that's, that seems fine for a team like where the Pelicans are, but like, because these clocks seem to be ticking so quickly now, like Zion Williamson's what, 20, 21 years old. Like, do they need to make the playoffs next year or else Zion starts talking about it? I mean, I guess the the, rumor, the rumblings have already started, right? Like Zion's family isn't happy with him in New Orleans and, uh, you know, they'll just talk about, hey, I'd love to play in New York one day. Like, uh, man, it just seems like they should be allowed to, to take a little bit of time and kind of plan for the future. But at the same time, they probably do need to make a leap next year and try to get into the playoffs or at least a play in, right? Well, I'll put this out there, too. If their plan is to eventually trade for another star to put alongside Zion, I think you could argue that Devontae Graham at his contract is better for that purpose than Lonzo is, right? Like, Lonzo Ball's contract is a real investment. Graham at $12 million a year, like, if you're the Blazers and you're trading Damian Lillard, you'd probably like to have a very young Devontae Graham for $12 million a year, right? That's a, that's a very good point. So... I, I don't know what the long-term plan is. They're going to have cap space next summer too, unless they really go all out re-signing Josh Hart. But I'm looking at next year's free agency and like, if they could get it on Levine, that'd be a great fit. If they could get it on Beal, that'd be a great fit, but I don't think that they're gonna. So Marcus Smart would be helpful for them next off season. Maybe Aaron Gordon, but do you really want another forward that can't shoot? Um, Joe Ingles would be great, but he's getting older. Like, 
I guess I want to know what the long-term plan is here before I really bash the Pelicans too hard. Because, like, a, Devontae Graham does fit, like, right? Like, having Devontae Graham, Brandon Ingram, and Zion Williamson as, like, the start of your rebuild, that's a pretty good place to be when you have cap space and picks to trade as well. They're not in a bad place here, but I guess I expected a little bit more. Yeah, it's interesting that you use re- like start your rebuild because I don't know if they view themselves as a as a rebuilding team. I think they think of themselves okay. as a contending team. Well, yeah, at this stage, it seems like they want to be winning next year. And by the way, like given these Zion rumblings, I get where they're coming from. I mean, I think he'll ultimately extend in New Orleans, to be clear. I think in general, you shouldn't really start making moves specifically to cater to a star until like year four, year five, year six, when like the threat starts to get more real. But they're... I, I don't view them as a playoff team right now. Do you? Like, I don't see how they're going to defend at a playoff level. Yeah, I mean, we can we can do our exercise like we always do. But, I mean, I guess if you think the Blazers are going to drop out, that's well, the, Grizzly, gonna the Grizzlies maybe, you know. I think the, the Grizzlies will probably be worse. The Blazers will probably be around the same, maybe slightly worse. We know if Lillard asks for a trade, that changes the equation. The Lakers are better. The Warriors are better. The Jazz and the Suns are better. The Nuggets are better with or without Murray. So you're talking maybe at best like the Kawhi-less Clippers. If Kawhi misses the whole year, Memphis probably takes a little bit of a step back. Portland may be in the mix again. Like, are there any teams that could make a jump into that class? Like, I maybe Minnesota gets better. Yeah. Um, and it's probably worse. Let's not forget you're also talking about a team that's going to have a, a first-time head coach. And also a team that was 23rd in the league in defense last year and lost Lonzo Ball and added Devontae Graham. So, was Lonzo Ball the best defensive player on the Pelicans last year? I guess Steven Adams? They're both gone. Yeah, Steven Adams is gone too. Joel Valanciunas is uh, not exactly a, a stout defender either. So, I really don't know who the best defender on the Pelicans roster is right now. Josh Hart? Josh, oh, Josh Hart's not on the roster right now. No, he's not? No, I mean, he's a restricted free agent. Well, they'll match. Come on. Well, I'm just saying, like, technically, he's not <laughs> under contract with them. Yeah. No, yeah. Well, I, I, think I mean, that the offense, point, no matter who it is, the point stands. They're, it's going to be hard for them to make the playoffs. I mean, even if they get in the play-in, you know, beating one of those teams two out of three times or whatever it is, it's going to be difficult. That, I mean, I know we want to talk about them trading for a star. I think what they really got to do is trade for Miles Turner. Whenever that opportunity comes... Like, within reason, if, if the Pacers asked for three first-round picks, I would just do it. Yeah, and let's not forget that the Pelicans have a gajillion first-round picks, which right, is like, always nice. Was, nice to have in your bag. It's funny. Like, that does matter. They've given up a fair few of them. They've given up three over the last week or so. But it's funny because you can't really rely on, as the Pelicans, being able to trade for whatever player you want because the Thunder can trade for any player that you want, too. And they can outbid you for anybody. So this is just a little subplot that I'm watching over the next few years is, sure, there are these teams like the Rockets and the Pelicans and a couple others that have all these picks saved up. But it won't matter if the Thunder can just swoop in and outbid them for anybody. I love how the Thunder just, like, like continue to, like, replenish their picks. It's like, well, they can't make all these draft picks, so they're going to have to trade them. And they do, but they just trade them for more draft picks in the future. It's amazing. Well, they have all this cap space now, and I keep thinking, how far does Dennis Schroeder's market have to fall 
before Presti just says, okay, one year, 15 million, I'm going to trade you for a first at the deadline. We'll take you. We'll take Kemba Walker. We'll get whatever we can for him. Kelly Oubre, that was another one of your favorites, right? Just get him back, trade him get again. Get him back, trade him for a first again. <laughs> now, I will say this guest lecturer spot they have with Horford and Walker and Chris Paul, those have all been really good locker room guys. Dennis, not so much. So maybe you don't want to introduce him back into your culture, but they've had him. So they know they know how he is. If they think he makes sense, they can do it. I wonder, that would be an interesting kind of thought experiment. Just like, would a player do that? Like, knowing that he'd probably get paid more than he could somewhere else and that he would eventually be traded to conceivably as a contender. Not only a contender, but presumably a contender that needs him, right? Like, if the team's giving up a first for him at the deadline, you know that it's probably a good fit, or they view it as a good fit anyway. Be interesting. Well, maybe we'll see it. Who knows? But I overall, New Orleans... shooter's market is otherwise. Yeah. Overall, New Orleans, kind of weird, not great. Would have lo- just been simple. Would have just been easier to just bring Lonzo back? I probably would have done it. Um, and there were some really interesting paths for them. If they had wanted to just bring back their guys and operate above the cap, they could have kept Lonzo. They could have kept Josh Hart. They could have used the $18 million trade exception that they got in the um, Stephen Adams trade. And it's like, maybe you could fit Devontae Graham into that exception, like if the Hornets were, were willing. And then you would have had the non-tax pyramid level as well. Like you could have made some real additions to last year's team. Plus you upgraded from Adams to Valanciunas. Like that probably is the path I would have taken. It would have costed you some long-term flexibility, but I think if you had needed to trade Lonzo in a year, you could have done it. So speaking of Lonzo Ball, why don't we talk about the team that he went to and are kind of making a push to to get into the playoffs. One thing to say, hey, we're a playoff team. We want to get there. But it's another thing to kind of put your money where your mouth is. Chicago Bulls, this is kind of the offseason I pictured for the Knicks, you know, going back to what we were talking about before, where, you know, you sign Lonzo Ball or sign and trade and you sign a trade for DeMar DeRozan and uh, sign Alex Caruso, and, and suddenly you look like, you know, hey, look, we're really making a push here. Is there, are these kind of superficial moves where it's not really going to make that big of a difference, or do you think that these are real moves that are going to help them move forward as a franchise? Well, it depends on what perspective you're looking at this from. Like, look, if we're being honest, this was the approach that they had to take once they traded for Nikola Vucevic, right? Like, they made their bet at the trade deadline. They gave up their opportunity to you know, rebuild or go the youth route by giving up two very valuable first round picks to get a win now player. They kept that up. They got a bunch of win now players, right? And Lonzo and Caruso and DeRozan. But the real argument here is not whether those moves make sense. And we can talk about whether or not they do, but whether or not going down this path at all made sense for them, right? Like, I think if you're going to give up your opportunity to rebuild, if you're going to give up now three first round picks, including number eight in the draft that we just had, to put this team together, you have to think that this is, if not a championship contender, like pretty close to it. Let's go down the list again. Are the Bulls better than the Nets? No. Are they better than the Bucks? No. Better than the Sixers? No. Not better than the Hawks. Not better than the Celtics. Not better than, I- I'm forgetting somebody in the East. I, I think you'd probably get some push, push some pushback on not better than the Celtics. I'm just saying. Okay, so, okay, fine. Like, let's say they're in competition for the number six seed. I'm just going to ask, if you're Zach Levine, and you're a free agent next offseason. You're coming off of a season in which you finish number six in the East and losing five in the first round to 
Miami, Atlanta, Philly, whoever. Are you that excited about re-signing? I think I, I think this what you know we've seen in the past where if if you if management shows a willingness to spend, uh, I think that goes a long way with these players. Uh, the other thing is that Lonzo Ball is really young. Patrick Williams is really young. Um, Demar Derozan, but, but, but yeah, yeah. Demar Derozan is not really young. Nicole is not. not really young. So okay. I think there's a scenario where this this really could have made sense if Patrick Williams was 22, but he's 19. Right. Like, I think if, if you really if you get a breakout from Patrick Williams and next year he is the, you know, all around force that you hope he can one day be where he's defending really well. And we can talk about their defense, which is not looking great at the moment, like defending really well, making his threes, creating his own shot, which you think he might do in year four or year five. If he does that in year two, now you're talking like now the Bulls have like real upside. I think it's unlikely that a guy who's 19 right now is going to do that. So they, they're in this weird situation where they have some young guys who are good young guys, like valuable, but no no likely young stars in the mix. And then they have these older guys who are also good, but not superstars. So you're a little confused with your timing here. So I, I guess just, I'm not saying, like, they're not bad moves in the sense that, like, they're bad players or anything. It's just, it's another one of those situations where I don't really get the overall vision besides we need to be as good as possible right now to try to get Zach Levine to extend next offseason. By the way, the opportunity cost of these moves is that the Bulls could have renegotiated and extended Zach Levine this offseason. It would have taken $14.2 million in cap space, but they could have done it if that was their, their goal. But if they would have done so, they obviously wouldn't have had the flexibility to go for Lonzo and to go for DeRozan and Caruso. Whether or not they made the right decision, I think that's debatable. Ultimately, if you want to build a winner, you kind of had to take advantage of this space now. Levine being underpaid helped you bring in those guys. But I, I guess I, I don't know how exciting I, excited I am if I'm Levine to stay with this group of guys for the foreseeable future. Also, just throw out an interesting stat here. Levine, mm. by virtue of not being extended, is going to make $19.5 million next year. Yeah. If he had been renegotiated and extended up to his max, he would have made $33.7 million last year, or next year, rather. That would have made him the highest-paid Chicago Bull in franchise history in a single season. Who do you think he would have replaced? Uh, I mean, see, I would have said Jimmy Butler, but they didn't re-sign him. They traded him. So, geez, it's not Michael Jordan, is it? It is 1998 Michael Jordan. That's who made $33.1 million. By the way, he made $33.1 million when the cap itself was $26.9 million. I explained how <laughs> that was possible on a story on Chief Guest Sports. He made 123% of the entire salary cap. To put that into perspective, the Lakers star trio of Westbrook, Davis, and James makes 107% of the cap combined. <laughs> like, oh, it, it's ludicrous how much Jordan made. But... For the 25th year in a row, or 24th, one of the two, the highest-paid player in Bulls history will remain Michael Jordan. And like, I, I don't think people grasp how how unbelievable that is. Because think about how finances work in the NBA, right? Like, the salary cap tends to rise steadily every year, so with it, contracts rise. So usually, if you ask who is the highest-paid player in franchise history for a team, it's going to be whoever the highest-paid player is in that given season. So I'll give you an example of this: 2016. 
Kevin Durant signs with the Warriors. He breaks the record for highest paid warrior at the time, which was Baron Davis, makes $26 million. The next year, Stephen Curry signs the Supermax. That starts him at around $35 million, I believe. I can't remember the exact number. But he has 8% raises annually. So he breaks that record every single year afterward. And now he signed another Supermax on top of that. So another four years of breaking the record are ahead of him. In total, the Warriors are going to break their record for highest paid player 10 years in a row. The Bulls haven't broken it in 25 years. This is, I mean, it's absolutely insane. Offhand, do you, do you know how much Steph Curry is making in 2025-26? It's $59 million. $59.6 million. Oh, so me. let's round it up to 60 Well, and by the way, like, I don't know what million he's going to be worth. I don't know what he's going to be worth at the end of that contract, but it's worth pointing out. The max is either, it's, usually it's tied to a percentage of the cap, but you can always get a 5% raise on top of that. Stephen Curry's probably going to age pretty well given his shot, and the Warriors are probably going to give him a balloon payment of some sort given his importance to the franchise. I wouldn't rule out him making more than $60 million a year after that. I mean, it's absolutely insane. Well, I mean, yes, we live in a, in a world where Chris Paul just turned down $44 million and, and signed a new contract. So anything's possible. But Michael Jordan, MJ the GOAT, he took it personally. Shout out to him. Well, let's get back to the Bulls for a second. There are two other things about them that I kind of want to talk about. Are they now a star trade destination with Patrick Williams as a core piece? I don't know. See, I saw there was this, you know, these graphics that come out during all the the free agency stuff, and it's like, oh, the new big threes, and it's like LeBron, AD, and Russ, and it's like Zach Levine, DeMar DeRozan, and Nikola Vucevic. It's like, mm, <laughs> kind of stretching the old big three thing here. So I I don't know if that's if you're a star and you have any say in what your your destination would be, or you have the ability to say, hey, look, I'm not going to resign there. So don't trade me there. I don't know if that is the the core that you're looking to go to. I don't think it would happen now, but like if they get up to a six seed, you know, Chicago's a pretty appealing city. Zach Levine would be an interesting co-star. Like I guess I wouldn't rule it out. The other thing I want to mention, like Mark Rosen got eighty five million dollars for that, three years, right? For three years, that's more per year than his last contract. He made 27.7 last year. He's making more than that on this year on an average annual basis, right? Like 85 million over three years is more than 28 million a year. Let me just say, because I spent today defending, I, I, I just made an offhand comment like, oh, the Knicks, you know, went for Evan Fournier. They could have gone for, you know, a more difference making star like Kyle Lowry, Chris Paul. I threw DeMar DeRozan's name in there and everyone just jumped on me. DeMar DeRozan is better than Evan Fournier. This dude was in the 94th percentile, according to Synergy, in half-court offense when you included passes. Uh, he gets to the line. He averaged a career high, almost seven assists last year. Still scored 22 points. Was efficient. Yes, he does not shoot threes. But the dude knows how to get buckets, and he does it in an efficient way. I'm just going to say that, that, yes, that is a lot of money. I don't know if I would have paid him that, but he's really good. I think he's getting better, and he's figuring out a way to affect games without shooting threes, which is what you need him to do. That's all. Okay, that's fair, but you still probably should be trying to affect games by setting, by shooting threes. And we know this. He tried it Marcus one year. He shot 36, 30%. Marcus Aldridge tried this, right? Like, for years, he was the mid-range guy. 
finally he pushes his range back to the three-point line. And, like, that made a big difference for the Spurs when he finally started doing that. You would think that the best version of DeMar, especially as he ages, is one that can shoot because he certainly can't defend. And that's the real problem with this team, right? Like, DeMar DeRozan is, is a bad defender. He's a negative. Vucevic is a negative, especially at center. Levine isn't as bad as he used to be, but he's certainly not good. They have good defenders on the team, to be clear. Bonzo Ball is a very good help defender. Alex Caruso, awesome on the ball. Patrick Williams, you're hoping, can be a good defender. I wouldn't rely on a guy who's 19 right now to be that good next year. So I, I think they're really relying on having a great offense. And do they have, I don't know, one of the 15 best offensive players in the league? I'd lean no. 21st in the league in offense last year, 12th in defense. Obviously, that's not taking into account that Vucevic was only on the team for, you know, a handful of games. Well, they lost Thaddeus Young. They lost, like, a bunch of guys that can defend a bit. Yeah. And uh, so, to DeRozan, I, I think that, you know, if he's handling a little bit less offensively, uh, kind of the same thing we're talking about with Westbrook, where, you know, hey, buy in, you can kind of alter your game a little bit. He seems like uh, veterans are generally just better at defense because they understand things. He had, he understands how to play basketball. Um, he's clearly got the length, size, uh, you know, athleticism to be able to to be a good defender. So I, I could see them convincing themselves that they're going to be able to turn him into a, if not a plus defender, at least a, not a minus um, okay, if Greg Popovich couldn't do it, why can the Bulls? Well, I think because he had to do so much offensively. I think with Levine and Vucevic there, he's not going to be tasked with with quite as much, and he's going to be able to focus a little bit more on defense. I, I guess, but I also just, like, what does he do off of the ball in this offense? Like, he's going to make life a little bit harder for Levine. Now, Vucevic can shoot at center. Lonzo Ball's a good shooter. Like, they have enough shooting here that it's not going to be crippling from a spacing perspective, but, like, they're not the Warriors either. Let me just ask you, project right now, where do they rank on offense and where do they rank on defense? Uh, I mean, I, I guess I would, if they were 12th in defense last year, I'm going to say like 15th, 16th. Like, I don't think they're going to – like it's I not going to be a catastrophic gonna, drop. I don't I don't I think, think so. I think they're going to be around 20. I think I maybe even further back. I mean, I guess it's a, you'd have to look at, you know, how are the other teams going to do, but I, mean, I don't well, know. Well, Lonzo Ball was the best defender on the Pelicans last year. How'd that go? Right, which kind of, I mean, you're almost proving my point in a little, in some sense, in that, like, it's not necessarily the defenders you have, it's the defense that you have and the coach that you have. And I think that if you go from having the 12th best defense, you're not suddenly going to drop just because of slight changes in personnel. Maybe a little more than slight. I don't know. It, it's a little bit more than slight. As for the offense, let's just go through the teams. Will it be better than Utah? Well, we'll say assume health. So they might be higher ranked on injuries. Better than Utah? No. Better than Phoenix? No. Better than Brooklyn? No. Better than Denver, even without Murray? I'd say no. Better than the Bucks? No. Better than Dallas, who has Luka, who might be the best offensive player in the world? No. Better than the Lakers? No. Better than the Blazers? No. Better than the Hawks? No. Better than the Heat? No. Better than the Warriors? No. That's 11 teams off the bat. Hey, I didn't say they were going to have a top ten offense. Better than the Pelicans, <laughs> probably not. But you have. Well, to have you're also you're also talking about a team work. that's that's ceiling is like the six seed, like we talked about. So that's is that. I mean, if they can get to fifteenth and fifteenth, like middle of the pack in both, that's that's a six seven seed, right? I I don't think they're going to be in middle of the pack defense. But like if if Williams is as good as he can be next year, 
then yeah, maybe you have enough to creep into the top 15. Caruso's an awesome defender, obviously. Kobe White, not so much. I don't know what their depth is going to look like, but I, I would not project them to be an above average defense or even an average defense. They have to be an above average offense for the theory of this team to make sense. Yeah, which is going to be tough. I think they're going to be awesome in transition for what it's worth. Super yeah. athletic. Lonzo is obviously one of the better transition ball handlers in basketball. Like, I think any deficiencies they have in the half court, which they're going to be good in the half court. They're going to be okay. They're going to be really good in transition. I really And Patrick Williams can be unlocked there, too. I, I, watching him last year, I don't know if it's him, if he was timid, if it was the system, if it was just him being you know 18 years old or whatever he was. Um, but I think there's just so much more there that they can do. And this is just like not even talking about him like creating on the ball or just just in transition off the ball cutting stuff like that. Um, I, I I didn't love the draft pick mostly because I hadn't seen him play a lot. Once I saw him play in the preseason, I was like, oh, man, this guy's going to be good. So I, I'm excited about that. Kobe White, I'm not sure about. I don't know what he is. As, as I would NBA be trading player. him for defense right about now. Yeah, I don't know if they need a bench bucket getter with the, the, the personnel that they have, but I don't know. We'll see. I actually, I didn't like the draft pick either, but that was me be, being the guy who just says everybody should have taken Tyrese Halliburton. One of my rare wins, but... Hey, I wrote, I wrote a story upside, saying he should have be getting top three considerations, so... Hey. As far as the upside goes, like, I've got nothing against Patrick Williams. I, I think he's going to be good. I just think it's the same logic that goes into Taylor Horton Tucker, right? Like, it's really rare that a guy is contributing to high-level winning in his age 20 season. When you get to 22, 23, like, now we're talking. I think Williams is going to end up being very good. I just think by the time he is... Jamar is going to be worse. Busevich is going to be worse. I don't know. Like, I, I hate to be the guy who harps on timelines. I don't think it's catastrophic here or anything. But I, I don't really think that aligns. And, like, I guess if I had a chance to trade Patrick Williams right now for, I'm going to say, not maybe not a star, but, like, a very good win-now player, I think that's probably what it would take for the Bulls to be a top-four seed this year. Now, maybe they think that he's enough of a star that you hold on to him and you just develop him. But I don't know. Like, I guess I don't see a clear path for them to be like a real title contender. They still have a ways to go on that front. So I, yeah. I guess I'm a little confused about what comes next. I think I think if they trade him, it's got to be for like a super duper star. Like, I don't think they're trading him for just a, a marginal move to get better. And I think what they, I think what they're thinking is it's, it's both. Right. Everybody wants both. They want to be able to compete now. Uh, you know, have the flexibility that they're like, hey, if we see, look, we're, you know, think we can really do this thing, then they have the capability of making a move. But otherwise, you're kind of bridging both sides of the fence where you have these younger guys like Williams and White and Lonzo and Levine, where you can say, look, we're going to be good in the future, but we don't need to suck now. We can still compete for the playoffs with guys like De DeRozan and Vucevic, who might not necessarily be part of our eventual championship team but they'll keep us good enough that guys will want to come here and all that stuff we've got to find a trade for kobe white i'm just there aren't that many teams right now strangely that need a bench bucket getter and there are even fewer that like have a defender that would make sense to trade for chicago like toronto would be an interesting kobe white fit but i don't know what they're sending out like i would be trying to trade for kobe white right now is all like i think he has a lot more offensive upside 
than the Bulls seem to by going and getting all of these scorers. So I don't know. Like, I think that's something to keep an eye on. I think somebody could get good value for him. Take him to the Lakers for Taylor Horton Tucker. They have enough hoopers, Colin. <laughs> He's a true hooper. I don't know if you've heard this. Is Dude he a gets true hooper? Buckets. Like, I don't know what the exact, I don't know. Is it all bucket getters? It's got, you got to be a bucket getter. I mean, I guess you, I just, I wonder, is it like all circle or all squares or rectangles, but not all rectangles or squares? Like, are all hoopers bucket getters, but not all bucket getters or hoopers? Like a transitive property, something like that. Yeah, like, I, I don't know. I, mean, I guess I'm a little confused by that. I have one other signing that I kind of want to get to. Like, oh, yeah. Let's I, think talk. Rudy, I think Rudy Gay going to the Jazz is like quietly pretty important. I, I know, like, Gay. it's not, it's not them getting like Draymond Green, right? Like, they're not getting an all-star small ball five that can like really transform everything about the way that they play, but they needed to have an option to go small as we saw in the Clippers series. And they needed an upgraded backup center because Derek favors was just awful in the playoffs. I think Rudy Gay kind of does both for them. He didn't play center much last year, but the bulls with Rudy Gay at center outscored opponents by 6.5 points front of possessions. Like that's really good for the Spurs, right? Like the Spurs not that good last year. Yeah, I didn't even realize he played center. That's how much I watched the Spurs. It's only 250 possessions. But still, hey, yeah, I like Rudy Gay. I think that's the type of player they need. And he, he posted on Instagram a picture of, like, welcome to Utah sign. So I'm all in. And they also, also, what do you think about the Hassan Whiteside signing? That was pretty crazy. I mean, I don't know. Like, it doesn't move the needle for me, I guess. Either it'll work or it won't. And if it won't, they can just trade him or cut him or whatever. Like, it's a minimum signing. Like, Low risk, low reward. Taking a risk. Hassan Whiteside. There's another guy. We talked about Drummond, another center who made a whole bunch of money and then just went straight to minimums. He'll he'll eat some innings in the regular season. Yeah, he'll eat some innings in the regular season. And then in the playoffs, he probably won't be much of a factor. But, like, Utah's regular season floor is so high that, like, even if he sucks, who cares? They're going to make a billion threes and it's not going to be a problem. Yeah, what did Rudy Gay shoot? Oh, 38% on threes last year. Look at this guy. That would have been a great Lakers target. You know what? I actually do have one other target, or one other signing I want to talk about. Team you cover, Otto Porter for the minimum is about as good as it gets. The the, <laughs> the swing that the Bay Area <laughs> went through after losing Nick Batum and Kent Bazemore and these other guys who they had their eyes on. It was just like total depression. Like, oh, I hope we can get Patty Mills. And then they signed Otto Porter for the minimum. And it was just like light years ahead. The Warriors are back, baby. Like, that's just like crazy. I mean, I like I like it. I think he's, I mean, for a minimum, come on. Like, of course. But he he hasn't played a lot of basketball in the last couple seasons. Like, we just got to keep it that will, in mind. It reminds me a little bit of Nick Batum last year, where Nick Batum obviously had more to do with situation. But he was obviously terrible in Charlotte towards the end and very overpaid. But he gets to a contender and, like, he's totally rejuvenated. And, like, Nick Batum took the minimum to stay with the Clippers. He did not need to. Nick Batum had much bigger offers out there. I think if Porter is healthy, it's a big if. Like, he's going from a maximum contract to a minimum contract. Like, there is a reason that he was making the max before. It's very rare to get a guy for the minimum that can reliably close games for you. If he's healthy, Otto Porter is closing games at power forward for them, right? It would be Draymond at center, Porter at four, Wiggins at three, Thompson at two, and Curry at one. That's like the death lineup reborn. 
not the Durant version, but at least the Barnes version. Yeah, I mean, if you're getting 44% three-point shooting Otto Porter, who is can actually move, <laughs> um, yes, that's that's ideal. I mean, it's honestly, like, for a minimum signing, it's probably exactly what they need, like, what they were looking for. They also got Nemanja Bielitsa on a minimum. I, I like to, that, too. Yeah, that's, that's he's a stretch four. He'll probably frustrate Steve Kerr quite a bit, but... The dude's not afraid to shoot, and that's what you need. Well, think about the 2019 finals when Curry and Clay were the only guys on the entire team that could make a three. Like, you need to have guys on your bench that can make a three. Even if they can't do anything else, like, you need to have one or two shooters just in case, like, we need to juice our offense for four minutes. Put in Bielitsa. Yeah, and and like you said, just, you know, regular season, just eat up some minutes, like, get out there and do some things. But, um... Yeah, they still have the the mid level, right? The full yeah, mid level. So who they knows? They gotta get a backup there. point guard. That's I don't know who it's gonna be. Maybe Dennis Schroeder. Maybe um, Reggie Jackson. I, I don't know who it's gonna be. I don't know who would take it. They gotta get a backup point guard. But if they do, I feel really good about their offseason. Obviously, I would have counter counterpoint. Jordan Poole is the backup point guard. No, just counterpoint. You're not drinking. You're not drinking the Jordan Poole Kool Aid, man. You should have seen the, this guy. Uh, listen, Jordan Poole is fine. I, I think he can play for them. I don't think he can be your backup point guard. He's not going to run the offense when Curry leaves the game. You know how I know that? Because I saw their offense when Curry left the game last year, and it was apocalyptic. He's a year older, and oh, so what if you got? What if you used the the uh, mid level on Andre Iguodala, and he was your backup point guard? Who's giving Andre Iguodala more than the minimum? Well, it depends. I don't know. I just I just think I'd love Andre Iguodala back if I were them. Offer him the minimum and dare him to beat it. What about Dan- Danny Green? Danny Green would be an awesome fit, too. Like, you can never have enough 3 and D guys. But then you don't have a backup point guard. Well, then at that point, like, maybe you trade Kevon Looney for somebody. Ooh. Kevon Looney. Think- went, from, went from being underrated to overrated so quickly. Poor guy. He just... He is a little overrated, but also, like, he has a hard time staying healthy. And that's $5 yeah. million matching salary. Like, finding a backup point guard out there somewhere that needs a home for $5 million is, that's doable. They could do that. Overall thoughts on free agency? I'm going to get a little nerdy for a second. Just something that I thought was really interesting. A lot of teams that had pathways to creating a lot of space ultimately ended up operating above the cap, right? Like, the Bulls did this. They signed and traded for Lonzo and DeMar, used the mid-level in Caruso. Pelicans did this with their sign and trades. Um, the Mavericks did it. I think it's interesting that it's, it's kind of funny that you only sort of need the threat of cap space. You don't need the cap space itself because once the other teams know that you have space and know that you can sign their guys outright, suddenly it seems like they're a little bit more willing to cooperate on sign and trades and to help you get their guys so I wonder if that's going to be a trend moving forward. I know that's a little bit nerdy. Um, the other kind of overall thought I have is nobody gained much ground on Brooklyn. The Nets are still the best team. Yeah, I think that was probably my biggest takeaway. Like none of the moves are like, like oh my God, this team is now like a real title contender. I guess Miami a little bit. And obviously the Lakers are always a title contender just because of who they are. But I, I guess no team like was really like, holy moly. They just went for it all, and now it's going to be crazy. If there is going to be a team that does that, like that really gets up there, I think it would be Golden State, and I think it would be through a midseason trade. 
Yeah, because right now, like, there's just no one left. Right, like, do you think Kaminga and Moody are going to play it all for the next year? I mean, just for my, like, like draft evaluation, I don't think Kuminga's ready to contribute on a winning team. Um, I'm sure they'll give him a shot, but I, I can't imagine by the end of the year he's part of the, like, consistent, consistent playoff rotation. Um, Moody, I think, can be more impactful sooner, but he's also 19 years old. So, like, uh, from everything the Warriors have said, they don't want to have to play these guys a ton of minutes. Um, obviously, in the regular season, that's different. But come playoff time, I can't imagine either of them having a real impact if the Warriors are where they want to be. I'll say this. I do think James Wiseman's trade value is going to be higher in six months than it is right now. Because yeah. I think he's going to get a whole lot of easy dunks with playback. And I think that's going to inflate his stats a little bit. And maybe start getting teams to believe, like, oh, maybe he can be Aiton. Like, maybe he just needed a year to get his feet wet. Like, I think we're going to be reading a lot of those stories. It's going to be interesting, too, just in general, the last year's rookie class, because they, they had that weird COVID training system, and then they missed Summer League. They had a very short preseason. just got thrown right into it, you know, after a short college year for most of them. So I'm, I'll be curious to see if there's kind of some surprises that, like, after a year of uh, a whole summer of training, being, you know, with the team, kind of make a bigger impact than, than we might have expected after watching them last season. Yeah, that's a good point. But last year's rookie class also was just better than we expected, right? Like, everyone was saying there are no stars in this class. Like, it doesn't look great. Edwards is a star. Lamelo's a star. We saw a lot of guys just turn out to be good rotation. I, don't know, I, wouldn't, say, I wouldn't say stars yet. Well, they're going to be stars. They're on the trajectory is all. We'll see. We'll see. I, I think last year's class in general was just way better than we thought it was going to be. And I think there are a lot of guys that, like, turned out to be, I don't know, at least playable NBA players. Like, let's go down this list right now. Okongwu looked like a rotation player. I loved him. Um, I loved him going to the draft, so, you know. I did, too. Vassell looks like a rotation player. Halliburton looks great. Neesmith came on towards the end of the year. Hoku's his own category. Um, Just see, you skipped Jalen Jalen Smith. No comment. Um, But I think that's, that's kind of the guy, like, type of guy I'm thinking of. Like, a guy who, like, didn't do a whole lot. Or Obi Toppin, whatever. Avdia, like, all these guys. Kyra Lewis, like... Poku. God, (laughs) Just leave, you leave cannot Poku. talk about this draft class and not talk about Poku. Leave Poku out of it. But like guys that like you know didn't really do a whole bunch their rookie year, but I think because they get a whole year of training now, might might surprise some people with how good they are. That's all I'm saying. We have a really promising group of guys in the 20s from this draft. From 24 to 30, RJ Hampton, Emmanuel Quick, Quickly, Peyton Pritchard, Jade McDaniels, and Desmond Bain, all in that stretch. All those guys are good. Precious Achua at 20, Tyrese Maxey at 21. It's a good class, right? I think that that was that was kind of starting towards the like what the theme was heading into the draft. Like there's going to be some like a lot of good players, but just no like stars. But it's turned out that we might have some stars. So, well, hey, yeah, good we draft. got I think we got two guys in here at least that are going to be very very good. Yeah, Wiseman and Avdia. Okay, Colin, I think that's probably the right time. To we drop. went an a- like over an hour and a half, but like what else? <laughs> What else could have possibly happened on this podcast? All roads lead back to Denny Optia. Yeah. So you know what hey, we didn't talk about today? No <laughs> fake white Powell trade. I'm so proud of myself. There's yeah, I mean, well that he's like the prime guy, right? That they're <laughs> that they're gonna trade. Well, 
I saw like maybe three hours before free agency started on Monday, that tweet where somebody reported like Mavs looking to trade Dwight Powell. And I had to text you and like alert you on Twitter, like red alert, Colin. It's It's finally happening. It's happening. Yeah, we will have an emergency pod whenever Dwight Powell gets traded. But as of now, for now, let's just follow the rest of free agency, which will hopefully hopefully be calming down, Sam. We're going to be able to to have some time to ourselves, maybe watch a watch a movie, maybe binge a show. Dream the dream, my man. Down a little bit. Like, I, it's time to relax a little bit, man. That's right. So go subscribe, rate, like this podcast, do all those things. Uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll have plenty more. Uh, as the summer goes along and as the season is is much closer than it usually is because of the short off season. So, Sam, thank you for joining me. Thank you for staying up. Enjoy whatever time off you possibly have coming up. Colin, pleasure as always. <laughs>